Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to three. I'm Gil Gross with Joel Drucker and Amy Lundy. We are back for a February uh, inactive big three edition of the show. Um, (laughs) Although Novak Djokovic will play next week in Dubai. He did hold a press conference uh, this week in Belgrade where he announced his intentions to uh, try to play the Sunshine Double, but he needs a special exemption as the United States uh, will still mandate that foreign travelers are vaccinated until uh, April, April 11th, I believe. I uh, I don't have a great idea of what the chances are that this exemption will be approved. I don't know how any of us could have any idea, uh, but he's given it a shot, Amy. And I hope it works out. I, I was on record saying last year that I thought he should be allowed to play the U.S. Open. I'm in the John McEnroe camp. And the number one reason is, for, in my mind, that COVID is not the threat that it has been. And somebody who has had COVID twice has pretty good immunity, so he wouldn't really be a threat to spread it if he did contract it. And it's just, we're through the pandemic now, it's over. And I believe that this law is outdated and it's set to be overturned in a few short weeks anyway. So I would be fine with him getting a special exemption. He is an exceptional person. He's he's at the top of our sport and that has a halo effect of goodwill and economic um, prosperity that he brings when he visits this country. So I would like to see him play. On the flip side, if it doesn't work out for him, then he'll rest his injury and that'll work out as well. Yeah, I mean... We'll talk about the scenarios of another another uh, sunshine double without Djokovic and Nadal because at this point it's just not rare. It's not rare at all. But I would say this is kind of classic government stuff. Takes too long. Uh, you know they they have made a decision as you alluded to that the policy is outdated. It is being overturned. But as I said back it you know last March when Novak was hoping for the policy to be overturned. This takes like two months. Like this never, it's the government. I don't know, maybe it's just the US government. Stuff takes forever. Uh, So this is an example of that. I I feel like the biggest indication of everything that the United States is kind of behind the eight ball on this is because as far as I know, there's nowhere else where Novak can't play. It's just the US. Joel, the Sunshine Double has not been a time of year where Djokovic and Nadal have succeeded in recent years. And in many cases, it hasn't been uh, a time of year where they've even played. So taxing. And I think particularly look at Rafa, um, often between the early stuff in the Australia and then the um, Indian Wells. And I think he obviously always wants to be in maximum shape for the clay season. So Miami is his least successful of the Masters 1000s. So he's been to the finals there a few times. Uh, Novak done well at both of them. I mean, it's amazing. You see how well he just 
can go from tournament to tournament so efficiently. But yeah, look, and then and then a few years ago, the the resurgence of Roger Federer when he took a sunshine double and got to in 2017 and and got to some of those finals. So it was all kind of uh, mixed up. And now it's like I think we're headed to a whole new era of it. I think it's interesting. Uh, Taylor Fritz won Indian Wells last year. Carlos Alcarez won Miami. These guys have never even played each other. They're each pretty much top six, five players. Pretty interesting. You look at Djokovic, uh, a tournament like Miami. He has not been to the quarterfinals in Miami since 2016. He played, he missed it in 2017. He lost first round in 2018. He lost third round in 2019. Uh, Nadal hasn't played Miami since 2017. So I'm over uh, the idea that like this is, you know, going to feel really weird because Djokovic and Nadal might not be at the Sunshine Double. It's looking like they won't be for Nadal. He definitely won't be. Like it almost feels normal now. Yeah, I'm you're surprised right. that Novak even wanted to play the Sunshine Double. And a tip of a cap to him that apparently he really does want to play it. Otherwise, he wouldn't have done this whole press conference and applied for this exemption. He doesn't need it at this point. He doesn't need it to cement his legacy. So obviously, he's doing it just because he loves competing and he loves tennis. Um, but because of his age and because of the success that he's had recently... Um, I think it's it's proven that time off is actually a good thing. So I was actually pretty surprised that he's going to these lengths to attempt to make it over here to the States. He did mention the experience that he had against Medvedev in uh, in New York uh, at the 2020 in the 2020 US Open final. Uh, and I, I think he m maybe just kind of misses the US. Like he hasn't been there in a long, long time. And I think he he doesn't want to miss out on it. And he probably feels really good about his tennis as well and thinks he can make a dent here. I actually do think like the Sunshine Double, I'm a believer that it is a pretty big deal because it it holds its own place in the calendar. Like it doesn't lead up to a major. So I think some of the masters that lead up to Roland Garris and lead up to the US Open do kind of, when we look back at it, get a little bit muddled in what happened at the major or overshadowed at what happened at the major, but the sunshine double does feel like an entity unto itself. And I, I understand why Novak would like, if he wants to have this big historic year, it's kind of, you go through it. He won the Australian open. Okay. How did you do at the sunshine double? How did you do at Roland Garros, the grass, North American hardcore. So it is that, that time of year, right? It has its own kind of place. Yeah, it's an interesting, it's a neat uh, sequence of events. And I think the the draw depth is what's really significant at these events. I mean, even though they're two out of three sets, but playing every day, the very different conditions in Indian Wells and Miami also, also with a with a 3,000 mile plane ride in, in between. So um takes a lot of, lot of energy. Yeah, it's super hard to do well at, at both. We've seen that over the years. Um, Nadal has pulled out of both with the hip abductor injury. It it feels like even if he, he may have been able to come back, it wouldn't have made much sense. This is another example. Like I think we talked about it after we after the Australian Open about how right now Rafa's saving grace is the magical he healing powers of the clay. 
because it has been very difficult for him to stay healthy on the hard court in the last 10 months. Well, soon after the Australian, after he exited, is he is pretty clear. It said, I think we saw a report about the number of weeks. Did we? I think we saw six to eight weeks. So that's uh, said to me. All right, see you in Monte Carlo. Um, yeah, and that was that's unfortunate. It's going to be unfortunate for the North American fans who enjoy seeing him play, particularly at, at Indian Wells, where last year we got to the finals. I was just curious. I was looking up if Nadal also pulled out of the Las Vegas exhibition and he did. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, ouch, that hurts that event, but it looks like they've got Alcaraz, Taylor Fritz and Francis Tiafo. Should so I go? Still... Yes. Yeah. That would go. be fun. Do it. I'm going to try to go. I'm going to okay. try to go. Okay. Uh, he might drop at Nadal. Another wrinkle to this. He might drop out of the top 10 for the first time since 2005 with the points that he lost. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Quite a run. Quite a run. run. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) 18 years, almost 18 years in the top 10. That's unbelievable. That's a record. I think it's, was it 990? I I forget how many weeks. Right. So I I don't think he's going to lose any, he won't lose any sleep about it. His, his fans are, there's probably someone like, uh, I know if I was 13 and into Rafael Dal, that would bum me out. I'd want him to get to a thousand weeks or something. (laughs) Yeah. I do. I do think that is a, a great record. I mean, being being top ten is such a benchmark. Just like being number one, is it weird that we create these arbitrary numbers? Maybe, but well, number one isn't arbitrary. Ten is kind of arbitrary, but hey, uh, it's a it's a big deal to stay in the top ten. It's a huge deal to stay in the top ten. And I think when players do it for for two years or three years, like it gives you a really good idea of well, how long were they in this thing at the top of the sport for Nadal to do it for 18 is insane. It's, it's a, I think it's an incredible record. Um, let's talk about state of the tour while these guys have been gone since the Australian open. I think it's been interesting. First of all, Carlos Alcaraz, who's actually playing right now against Fabio Fanini as we speak has come back in one Buenos Aires right away. And, I know that not every injury is the same, and sometimes it's difficult uh, to compare these things, but you know, we've seen team have so much difficulty come back from the wrist. Zverev has been very slow coming back from the ankle. Alcaraz just won a title. He came back and he's just won a title. Yeah, the field isn't great. Yes, it's on clay, but it 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 does remind me of some of the the things that we've 
taken for granted about the big three, just coming back from an injury and and not taking that bad loss and going all the way and winning a title. Yeah, that was an impressive effort from him. Yeah, because get right back. And again, we don't know the extent of what the injury was. We also know that he's 19 and and he just loves to play. I mean, as we saw last year in his emergence, uh, those other guys, I mean, I greatly enjoy team and Zverev. I don't think they quite have the magic that Alcaraz has, the the completeness of his game and the zest for competition that he's shown at such a young age. And again, the monolithic way to look at these injuries, and then there's kind of like in the specific why each of these players has these injuries and how they then affect them. It's clear that Alcaraz is a cut above and is something special and it's needed it's much needed like with Federer retiring and some of these other guys like team and Zverev and even Medvedev even though he won last week and and he's looking good it's clearly that he's not this exceptional force that this teenager is so um it's just to me it's clear that you know there's the big three and and roger retired and so there's novak and rafa who can do anything at any time you just don't know you try not to bet against and then you have alcaraz and then there's another drop off yeah i would agree yeah appears to be at this point sure alcaraz finished the year number one last year started outside the top 30 and just shot through. So now this guy, I'm, I'm, I'm really eager. So I'm really eager to see how things continue for Alcaraz this year. Title defense in Miami, Clay, U.S. Open, lots and lots of stuff. And people are, are aware of what he has and what he doesn't have. And so that's going to be very interesting. Yeah, and and when he does play Novak, it's going to be a, a really, really highly anticipated match that everyone will surely overreact to. Like whatever the result is, there will be a large overreaction, regardless of who wins. You mean if the result is not at a major? If it's not at a major, if it's at a major, I think any reaction is proper is is worth proper weightage. In, in importance of the result, sure, but I, I mean, uh, as a predictor of the future, an indication of what we'll see in the future. Uh, there is likely to be an overreaction when they when they do ultimately play this year. Meaning, uh, if if Novak wins, you know, Djokovic is is Alcaraz is still not good enough to ever beat Djokovic. And if if Alcaraz wins, it, it it's likely to be the other way. Like Djokovic is in trouble; he can't beat Alcaraz. It's just how it's just I think how it goes when two guys haven't played much, and I know they played once in Madrid and we're waiting for them to play, and then they finally do play, it's easy to forget that just because it goes one way doesn't mean it can't go the other way next time. That's Particularly it. if that happens in a Masters 1000, because, you know, you've all, as Joel says, you've always got another Grand Slam right around the corner. And every, you're right, everybody will foam at the mouth and, and put emphasis on it for that, that week, and then they'll almost forget and for me, it takes on even a greater importance when they play at a Grand Slam. Like, like that's to, legit hype. I'd like to see, well, I'd like to see them play each other four times in the next two years. That's what we're hoping. What, we're, what, we're, what we don't want to see is just one, one outcome, okay, at a 
at a non-slam. They play there. It happens in some semi or final, and then they don't meet. So what we're hoping to see is each of them stays on a track to to play one another. But then and then there's and the Dal's in the mix too. And I think that's not that's a that's a good look. The results the results back that up of of the last fifteen months. Medvedev, I think, was kind of a little. Uh, he's had a little tough year of it. I mean, he he was number one in the world just about a year ago. He's definitely had a tough year, but he had a great week last week where he snapped a nine-match losing streak against top 10 players, and he beat a phenomenal Yannick Sinner in a, mm-hmm. in a very high-quality match. And, you know, the scoreline in the second and the third set, 6-2, 6-2, very impressive. Again, against a guy playing, playing well. Not playing smart, I would argue, but playing very, very well. I still feel, though, like... Okay, I actually called Daniil Medvedev's match today against Christopher O'Connell. And O'Connell tried a serve and volley in, on his first service game, and Medvedev came up with a great return. And then for the rest of the game, he, didn't, he stayed back. Medvedev kept winning rally after rally after rally. Second service game, didn't serve and volley once, was broken. Now it's for love Medvedev. He's rolling in this match. He's lost maybe a couple of points. And O'Connell goes back to serve and volleying every single point. And from there, it was a match. From there, he held serve. Serve and volley, I would say 75% at least, 75% of first serves. And then he uh, O'Connell also has a one-handed backhand, which he slices a lot. He just started slicing it inside the service box. Short inside. It wasn't even a drop shot because it wasn't like a, you know, put air under it, really delicate. Just slice it short in the service box. It worked. It worked. So my thing on Medvedev is, okay, that's Rotterdam was very impressive. Uh, He was very good. I still think there are going to be some issues against certain guys who can execute certain things. That's where I'm at. No question. I watched that Sinner match too. And remember, Sinner did some certain volley. He didn't execute well enough, often enough. And he was kind of staying back also and getting into rallies. And yeah, I think I think it'd be intriguing, for example, to see Max Cressy play Medvedev right now, to see that as a matchup if, um, on, a, on an indoor court. Um, and- Here's the problem. Here's the problem, Joel. So you you bring up Max Cressy against against Novak and Daniil, and and Cressy's playing great, ninety two percent hold percentage this year. My thing is is there was two things. First of all, outdoors, uh, he doesn't seem to be the same at all. Like that he is indoors because he doesn't have a, he has two first serves and it's so much less reliable outdoors. Second thing is he doesn't have a return game. So in, in a, in a tennis match, like, like when he played Djokovic uh, last year in a tennis match, it's not all that competitive on his service games. He's, he poses a, a huge problem, a huge threat, but in the tennis match, maybe not so much. Well, if you're holding 92% of the time, <laughs> half the games, but I know what you mean because then it seems like he's never going to return game that he's going to get broken. So I'm not going to yeah. use, him. I'm not going to use a specific to cite a general ap- approach to how you play people like Medvedev. I mean, Stefan Edberg must watch Medvedev and think, Oh my God, I would love to play this guy. Now, granted, I get the generational things. I'm just going to throw a kick serve out there and I've got great volleys and an angle volley and, and force him some. And also alter and, and force him to alter his return position as Sinner did in Rotterdam. 
Now he has to move in a little closer. Now he has to change his court position. Now at least you're playing the chess that Medvedev, when he emerged a few years ago, Medvedev seemed the premier chess player. Well, it's interesting that that short slice would work because, as we know, Medvedev does not like to be drawn in. He's not comfortable up there. And he's tall. So to have to bend down to get some sort of, you know, low shot would be a, a good strategy. But it's interesting. I watched some of that center match as well. He did a great job problem solving. And after the match, he said that he decided to go aggressive. And we've talked about Medvedev's style, how he likes to redirect and, and that kind of thing. But he decided on the spectrum of I'm going to play more defensive or I'm really going to go for my shots. He chose the aggression and that won him the match. Yeah. He, he, he was court position. He changes court position some, and it's a, you know, to try to take balls earlier, stand a little closer to the baseline. But I think, I think as a fan, Gil, as you know, of the, the short slice, I, I like that shot personally. And it's it's you're altering the the height and the dimension of the court, looking for ways to sneak in. I, I think again, there's a developmental lesson going on here that can happen for players younger. You know, tricky for players. I see how Yannick Sinner is looking to come to net more, and yet he has such an arsenal that it's going to be interesting to see how we can integrate that in real time in the top 20 in the world. Younger players, I think they ought to look to that and see this is how you play someone like Medvedev or Novak. Novak returns deep, he re which means he returns high, which means you have a look at a volley if you served him. He might adjust. Good. Make him adjust. Yeah, I feel like Medvedev, though, also was uh, – he just started hitting harder in the second yes. and the third set to Amy's point. So, yeah, core position core position was a factor. By the way, he also adjusted his return position in the third set against O'Connell. And, and you're right. Like, I, I think you're spot on about this, Joel. If you make him adjust, that's a win because we know where he wants to return. So if you make him return from somewhere else, you're de facto making him less comfortable. So yeah, I, I think we're kind of on the same page. Like Medvedev is doing some things at, a, at an incredibly high level, uh, but th there still might be a question of, of matchup issues for him. Uh, let's look at the Dubai field. So Djokovic is going to play Dubai the two seed and Novak will be the top seed. The two seed, Rublev. And then in order, Medvedev, FAA, Herkoc, Hachinov, Zverev, and Chorich. Those are the top eight seeds. I'm still in a place where I, I just think this is all about Novak. There's literally nobody in there that I think is dangerous to Djokovic if he just plays, I don't know, 90% of the level that he played towards the end of the Australian <laughs> Open. It's amazing to think that he's going to be 36 and his game is might be even more house money than ever. Because maybe, maybe because, you know, Rafa's not around as much and Roger's retired or whatever. It's like, I, I, I agree with you. I've, I think in an odd way, some of the time he, he took off, he's been had to take off in recent years has actually aided his uh, freshness factor. We talked about that near the end of last year. Poor Rublev. He keeps, joining these tournaments where he has to play Novak or Novak's in the draw. Um, but before we, we kind of get into that, I, I did want to mention, because we talked about Nadal falling out of the top 10 and what a great run it's been. Um, Djokovic did, this was interesting how this popped up as a news item 
because it's men and women. Djokovic did tie Steffi Groff's record for most weeks at number one, so we should acknowledge that. I think it was 377 weeks. Um, so that's a record. That's an accomplishment. Uh, what do you guys think about that, men men and women? That's great. I think that's great. I think Gil doesn't like no, it. No, I don't like it. <laughs> Because it can be it can be used like in this case, it's a positive story, right? It's like, oh, Novak passed it. Let's celebrate that. The problem is, while I'm okay with that, I'm not okay with, oh, well, you know, let's say, for example, uh, sure, Novak passed Rafa by by winning slam 23, right? Let's uh, let's say that that were to happen, right? Oh, but, you know, he's not at 24, you know, Margaret Court's at him, right? So like... <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't think it's fair to, to do that the other way. So I don't think it's fair to do it either way. Like, you know what I mean? I just think that it should be separate, but Joel, I mean, you're the, I, I really do look to you on things like this. Open era weeks at number one is a pretty darn good thing. Margaret court slam tally, which I evaluated in depth last year in comparison mm -hmm. to Spiel. Yep. different thing because of size of draw and all that. Um, Graf and Djokovic are both doing this in the open era of 128 slam draws, of winning seven matches, of full draws. It's okay. It's okay. Accept the data points. It's all right. No one is, no one is, it's, these are just, these are just data things that surface and they're kind of neat. And then you can look at, you can trot out that she won 22 majors and let's look where hers came from. And I think to me, Numbers should be the, the, the start to a dialogue, not the end of the dialogue. That's how I look at data. In other words, it should, it should trigger. It's a little bit what I think about documentaries. A documentary should trigger you to want to know more, not, okay, I know all I need to know. I know all I need to know, you know that, that he's you know, 22, say no more. No, begin to say more. And so I think it'll be, it'll be fun to do the analysis like Novak, the, the 10 Australians, the the two French, you know, and, and, you know, and look at what those all mean. And I think that's where we get into the real texture and understanding of a player. You know, I want to go qualitative with this stuff. And she, it's like, I always think with her seven, six, five, four, seven French, six Wimbledon, five us four. And it's kind of fun to think about those things. Yeah. All right. Maybe it's. Not I mean, I I shouldn't say this because I'm going to get so much blowback on it. But my only question would be, when the women pass the men, do we get the new news items? You know, like if when Serena passed Sampras and something, did someone say Serena Williams passed Pete Sampras? <laughs> I I don't know. Not sure. But I I like I like uh, Joel's approach to it because it's like. Let's just talk about it. Let's ask more questions. It's a point for inquiry or investigation. I like that way of looking at it. Yeah, uh, I guess here's my concern. I didn't put it too eloquently. My concern is that men and women can be combined when it's convenient for the person who, for the person who's trying to make a certain argument and separated when it's convenient for a different argument. And th there can be some picking and choosing based on what you're trying to say. Well, that's, that's this my point when I when people talk to me about, well, what if you gave labor today's equipment and you had, you know, uh, Roger play with yesterday's? I said, how great! You're serving your agenda. You're enhancing your your old favorite, who you like a lot, 
and you're subtracting from your from the newer guy. And so what I always look to when I hear people say these things, I like to find out how old they are. Because what I learned, there's a great saying I learned, it says the golden age of sports ends when the athletes start getting younger than us. So you talk to someone and they make a point like that. You find out how old they are. And if they're, and there's a good chance they'll be younger than the person they're wishing to boost and <laughs> older than the, because the heart is going this way. The heart wants labor. Give labor today's equipment. And you see what I mean? So yes, so there's just an interesting thing that goes on around the, the deployment of data. Absolutely. I'm glad you brought that up, Amy. That that's a that that's a fun uh, talking point. Uh, so Djokovic in Dubai next week. Uh, oh, one one nugget before we get into Dubai. It was super fast last year. Novak was uh, hadn't played at all. He came back, lost to Yuri Vesely. Apparently, they slowed it down. Just something to keep in mind. Arena Sabalenka was like, "This is a new court, new balls, and it's slower." That's my source, um, Sabalenka. And uh, I found that interesting. So Djokovic to Dubai next week. We will talk to you sometime after that. That'll do it for this episode of three. Remember, we're available on all podcast platforms. We appreciate it if you leave a rating and a review on Spotify. And if you are watching on YouTube, like, comment, and subscribe. We will see you next time on the next episode of three.